Welcome to Making Waves. On today's program covering the Deep Wireless Festival, we have an artist talk by Toronto radio artist Andrew O'Connor. This uh, talk was recorded February 2nd at the NASA North Media Arts Centre in South River. And in it, Andrew talks about his radio artworks, his pirate radio activity, and his radio theatre projects. All right. Thank you, Darren, and uh, thank you to everybody for coming out. I guess in, in thinking about how to, uh, where to start the artist talk tonight, I was reminded of um, an interview I did not too long ago for, um, for a, a, a kind of prestigious and, and well-paying residency that I, was, that I was being considered for, uh, that I didn't end up getting. But uh, the first question of the interview, they said, uh, tell, us, tell us where it all started for you, or tell us you know, your journey, which I kind of wasn't sure how to answer it first, and, and uh, uh, my response was, you know, depending on how far you want to go back or where you want to start the clock, uh, you can really trace it to uh, me at the tender age of 11 getting a dubbed cassette copy of uh, Fear of a Black Planet by Public Enemy. And that was sort of the first, uh, and it just, just blew my mind at that, at that age, and, and uh, that was one of my first exposures to, you know, what I now see as, as real music and, and real sort of art. And I, I don't think I'd, I'd, I don't think I realized it at the time, but I'd never experienced anything like that before. And it was this sort of uh, kind of watershed moment for me. And uh, you know, and and for for several years after that, I listened to nothing exclusively, you, you know, hardcore rap music, uh, Ice Cube, N.W.A., Ice T, all of that stuff. And and it's funny because I really had no connection to that music. Um, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Waterloo. Uh, uh, for those of you listening at home, I am, I am, uh, you know, European descent. So I really had no connection to, uh, what they were talking about in that music or no real idea about what it was, but I knew that it was real and I knew it was something that, that inspired me and, and sort of, uh, uh, got me going and on, on, onto other things. And, and for me at that time, you know, growing up in Waterloo, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a, a good scene for hardcore rap music in the suburbs of Waterloo in the, mid to late 80s and so my only two sources of that to to, to get that kind of music was um uh, uh once a week there was an hour-long program on much music called rap city and uh there was a a show on uh, the uw radio station uh ckms called the wax jungle on thursday nights and i would listen to that and that was my source for finding out new music and uh several years later i ended up becoming involved with ckms and becoming a volunteer programmer there and uh, that was another sort of watershed kind of moment for me. And so I got involved uh, just doing a music show there. And uh, it was really, it's hard to describe this place. It was, it was the kind of definition in my mind anyways of, of, of what a community radio station should be. Um, and it was just this little slice of heaven where uh, literally it was, the UW at that time owned this big sort of plot of land for future development. And it's now all been developed. Uh, but at that time, they grew corn on that land because I guess you get an agricultural subsidy if you're growing some sort of food product. Uh, so to get to this radio station, you had to drive down a dirt road through the middle of a cornfield. And it was this dusty old warehouse space where you got inside. The walls were just covered with posters that had all been defaced and you know written on. And there's records and CDs everywhere and loud music coming out of every room. You were not only allowed but encouraged to smoke pot in the studio while doing your radio show. It was, it was that kind of place. It was just, it was beautiful. 
And while there, I sort of became involved with this program called Frequent Mutilations, uh, which was a very long-running uh, radio art program. Every week, it was an hour-long program, ran for close to 25 years, uh, which made it one of the longest-running programs of that nature in Canada. Um, and, and I call it a radio art program, but we never really used that term at CKMS. I mean, the show kind of predates that term's existence, but it was never really... I guess I can only speak from my own perspective, but it was never really viewed as like this, this artistic endeavor. It was just this kind of weird show that everybody took turns contributing to, and you'd make an hour-long sound collage. There was, no, there was no rules. There was no format. You just had to make something involving you know, a lot of different sounds and mixing and, and editing techniques. Um, and so there was a rotation of people who, who did it over the years, and I was involved for several years. And... Um, I think as sort of a generalization, people, the approach to that show is people kind of looked at the radio studio as an instrument. Uh, so in your standard radio studio, back then anyways, you had you know, a couple of turntables, some CD players, uh, microphone, tape players, and, and a couple of reel-to-reel -reel machines. And so you'd use all of those elements to collage sound, to manipulate sound. You know, you'd play records backwards and, and do all sorts of tricks. Uh, people would bring in you know, field recordings that they'd made and mix it into the, the overall piece. Um, and a, bi a big part of, of that show and, and how it started was uh, through reel-to-reel -reel tape machines. Uh, I don't know if you all know what a reel-to-reel -reel tape machine is. Uh, it's kind of out of date now, but, uh, but back then it was, it was um, what we used to, to really produce the show. And there was two sort of main functions, two main sort of tricks you could do with a reel-to-reel -reel machine. Um, and without getting into too much detail here, uh, the way, the way the, a tape machine is set up, uh, the record head is before the playhead. So as the tape goes through, it goes over the record head and records whatever you're, you've got coming into it, and then it goes over the playhead. And if you have the channel down on your board for the, play, for, for the tape machine, you wouldn't hear anything. It was silent. Uh, but if you brought that channel up a bit, you'd get reverb without needing some sort of patch or pedal or anything, right? Because it, it records it and then plays it, and then you bring it into the mix, it comes back into the tape machine, and you've got yourself reverb. And so, uh, and so we, we would use the, the sort of elements in the radio studio to produce this sort of hour-long sound collage, and, and it went on for years and years and years, and uh, I don't even know how many hours are, are archived of this, this show, but... Uh, uh, a friend of mine in Guelph has has the archives on his computer, and and it's a you know, yeah, it's it's quite a quite a historical sort of collection of of work, and it, and it spans the sort of evolution of the genre because when it started off, we just, I mean, I wasn't involved. It started in the early to mid '80s, but it, you know, it started off with just analog equipment, and as the show progressed over the years, by the time it was done, you know, you had digital effects and a digital editor and all these other things, so. Uh, the, the archive of the show kind of encapsulates um, not only these years of, of this, this radio program, but also the way the genre changed through the technology that came into the station. And um, it was really influential for me. It was very, it was, you know, again, like uh, learning how to make a tape loop to me was, again, like hearing Public Enemy for the first time when I was 11. It just set that light bulb off and was like, oh, that's, oh, okay, okay. And uh, in many ways, that sort of helped to set me on the path that, uh, that I guess, brought me here. Um, 
so I'm going to play, uh, as the first clip here, just a little excerpt of uh, an episode of Frequent Mutilations that I did, uh, just to give you a sense of sort of the, the scope of the show and what it sounded like. That's not the one. Sorry. Um, this one here. So this is a live uh, Frequent Mutilations near the end of the show. So that's just a clip. The whole thing's about an hour long. Uh, but as you can hear, there's different elements of uh, sound brought in there. Like you could hear a little jazz record that I was manipulating by hand and some bird song and some water recordings and other field recordings. And um, I think the one sort of staticky sound, I was uh, putting the needle down on the center of a record, like the actual like part with no grooves and just getting that like static. And, and uh, you know, it was never, uh, the show was never meant to be like a polished 
you know, thoughtful hour long, you know, thing. It was, and, and sometimes it was, but for the most part, it was just sound collage and experimenting with different techniques of manipulating sound and collaging sound and bringing disparate elements together. And uh, yeah, like I say, the show was just a huge uh, source of inspiration for me. And it, and it went on to become uh, source material for, I guess, what was a, my first sort of public installation piece um, it, it called Frequent Mutilations. And it was, uh, it was a tribute to the show because the show had ended in 2008, 2009, uh, thanks to some I guess, changes in programming or focus at the station, the station that shortly thereafter went under. But uh, it's a... That's when the cornfields disappeared? What, yeah, yeah, the, corn, the cornfields were disappearing, getting <laughs> developed, and, and the station slowly went under. And um, it's a, I think it's a symptom of, you know, when things financially or programming-wise get tight or there's a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure on the station at that time to be relevant to the students who were paying for it. And so when these pressures come about, uh, it's often the experimental late-night weirdos that are the ones that kind of feel it the worst and they're the ones that get cut. And uh, eventually, freaky mutilations went under. But to uh, pay tribute to this show and, and just the thousands of hours of, of original content created for it, uh, I made this installation piece uh, using tape machines. Uh, yeah, yeah, one, yeah. We'll play a little clip of it now. And so you can see there's, it was a piece for four reel-to-reel -reel tape machines and a series of giant analog tape loops that I would cut and splice live. And so each, each loop had sort of an element on it, a single element like a vocal loop or some sort of rhythm or some sort of drone. And they would all play at once and I would sort of, one by one sort of cut and splice new loops into the mix so it created this sort of ever-evolving sort of sound composition much like the show itself so we'll play a little sense of it and so you can see I had the a sort of a special mount for well it's a piece of wood with a little screw on top and I could put the the empty reel on top and attach it to a microphone stand so I could just adjust to the length of each tape loop so it would be tight uh, and so all the tape loops were roughly the same for each so I had I'd 
a, a master reel for each tape machine. And so all the loops for each machine were roughly the same length, but as Darren said, it was either seven and a half inches per second or 15 inches per second. So to get them the exact same length would have been nearly impossible. Uh, so I had to have uh, a little bit of leeway and be able to adjust. And you could see at the very beginning there, I had my little razor blade and I cut the tape and I tape it back together into a loop and then string it up and then uh, bring it into the mix. So that was, uh, that was Freaky Mutilations. And uh, yeah, again, that was, this was, uh, I think this video is from uh, the Open Ears Festival in Kitchener. So, so you were creating it in front of the audience? I was creating mm -hmm. it live, yeah. I cut, mm -hmm. cut and spliced the, the tape live and, and every, you know, five minutes or so I'd bring in a new loop and but I'd take it, one down. But the time frame was that it was an, like a gallery is open for the whole day? It was, yeah, it was a gallery piece that would run from whatever, noon to five or something. So it actually ended up being a whole lot of work on my part because yeah. I had to be there the whole time. and. Uh, uh, cutting and splicing tape is a very sort of uh, fine motor skill. So it was like this weird sort of yoga I was doing all day where like my muscles were just exhausted from crouching over and cutting tape. Um, so uh, around this time and, and along the time when I was you know, involved in community radio, I was also um, working as a freelance producer at, at public radio stations and at the CBC, uh, working for shows like Two New Hours and The Signal, sort of contemporary music shows but also uh, working sort of more in the news and talk side of things, producing uh, short documentaries and stories for a bunch of different uh, departments and, and shows. Um, and probably the one that I wanna feature in, in, this, in this talk and some, one of the ones that I'm maybe most proud of is um, a feature length documentary I did on uh, Murray Schaefer, great Canadian composer. I did a, a, a piece for a show called Inside the Music, which I don't think exists anymore. The show, not the documentary. Uh, all about his work in the field of acoustic ecology. So anybody that's been hanging out here and talking to Nadine or Darren, I'm sure is aware of Murray Schaefer and uh, acoustic ecology. But um, I sort of took a look of, of at his work sort of over the five decades he's been involved in this, sort of the founding work in the 70s up, to, up till today. And um, it was, uh, I don't know if, if any of you know of Murray Schaefer, but he's a pretty notoriously difficult man. And uh, I spent over a year trying to convince him to do an interview with me. He hadn't granted a feature length interview to the CBC in about three decades and uh, took, a, took, like I said, over a year of just calling him and not bugging him enough that he would do it, but not too much that he would get mad and tell me off. So it was this fine line I kind of rode for a year. Um, and finally he just relented and said, yeah, you know, you can come over and do an interview. So went out to his house outside of Peterborough and, and just had a marvelous interview. Like, I mean, uh, after all I went through to get there, the interview was just the polar opposite, just the loveliest man and just razor sharp, so well-spoken, so intelligent. It was, it was phenomenal. And, uh, and the, the documentary that ended up coming out of it, I, I'm quite proud of, and I'm gonna play a little clip for you uh, now. Um, and before, I guess just to set this up, I think one of the reasons I'm sort of uh, so proud of this and so happy that I, I saw it through and, and made it happen is that, uh, like I said, it was probably the first interview he granted to the CBC in 30 years. And uh, from what I hear, his health is declining and he's, I mean, he's gotta be close to 90 now. If he isn't 90, he's up there anyways. Yeah, and yeah. And so, and, and 
you know, I have heard unofficially that his health is in pretty serious decline. And so it doesn't look like he's going to be giving any more interviews to the CBC or, or anyone. So uh, the fact that I was able to capture his words and his, and his knowledge while he was around and still somewhat willing to talk uh, is, is, I think, important. Really good condition. I think the 1970s, when we were out there, I think that was the noisiest decade uh, that Canada has gone through, especially in Vancouver, perhaps, because um, the one thing I noticed immediately on going there was that Vancouver is a warmer city than most of the cities in Canada. Therefore, you don't have to have so much insulation. You don't have to have double glazing. Um, so you're getting more in invasion of sounds from the exterior in a Vancouver house than you would in a Toronto house or a Montreal house. Um, another thing, of course, is that uh, it was the era of what they called the muscle cars. Uh, cars were being deliberately manufactured to make more noises. You know, the sound of a really good, strong engine, you know, um, was part of the thrill of driving a car. So uh, there was a lot of interest in, in, in that at the time, but largely as a noise issue. And um, I was trying to get people, whole populations of people, to sort of rise up <laughs> and start listening carefully. now to another piece of mine, um, something that I made in uh, Dawson City, Yukon, and it's actually connected to the piece I'm uh, doing tomorrow night, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Um, so I did a residency at the Klondike Institute for Art and Culture in Dawson City, Yukon, which is a wonderful gallery up there. Uh, they have a great residency program. And uh, I was there for six weeks and commissioned to create um, a public site-specific installation. And um, I guess in, in many ways, uh, you know, Darren and I did a, did an interview a couple of weeks ago uh, that didn't end up going to air because of some technical issue on my end that I still haven't figured out. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, in, in the course of that interview, Darren sort of mentioned that, you know, he's seen these sort of two different sides of my work where I have this side that I, you know, make documentaries for the CBC and make narrative radio pieces, but I also have this sort of sound art background as well. And, um, I guess in, in my mind, I've never really seen those two things as different. They sort of come from the same place. They come from the same idea. Uh, the end result is sonically or aesthetically different. But to me, they've, I, I don't necessarily always see the separation between those two things. Uh, but this piece in Dawson uh, is, is interesting to me because I think I, was, I found a way to bridge those two worlds of, of sort of narrative radio and, and the sort of sound art composition end of, of what I do. Uh, and so just as sort of an explanation of the piece, um, I set up uh, about a dozen little mini FM transmitters in storefront windows around, around the downtown core, which is very small. And I don't know if you know anything about Dawson City, Yukon, but the whole uh, sort of downtown is preserved as a national historic site. And it's preserved in like the Gold Rush era architecture and never, everything's, you know, boardwalks and dirt roads and everything. It's, it's really special. And... Um, and so I, I, I hid these um, little mini FM transmitters all around town in an array so that 
they have about a 50 meter radius broadcast. So I laid them out so that as you walk through, they're all they're all transmitting on the same frequency, like 107.9. And so if you walk through with a radio tuned to 107.9, um, you're going to walk through the various transmitters. And as one starts to fade out, you're coming into the next one, and the next one starts to pick up. So it's this uh, sort of ever-changing sort of sound collage, and each uh, each transmitter is broadcasting uh, what I sort of referred to as a, a narrative loop or like a, a little collage of stories and sounds that relate directly to where you're standing, the, the area you're passing through, the, the buildings, the landscape, the personal memory and experiences that resonate in these places. Uh, and Dawson City was a great place to do that because there was such a deep connection to the land and to the buildings and the community that everybody had all these stories and had all these reflections about what this place means to them. So I, so I collected all that and built these narrative loops and each one was playing 24 seven and they're all of a different length. So because they're all playing at the same time over and over again, they're all a different length, you will never hear the same combination of stories. So one loop may be 10 minutes long, the other one's seven, another one's 14. So the points of intersection between the loops are always constantly in flux. And it sort of created this environment where there was no definitive version of this piece. It all depended on where you entered it from, how quickly you walked through it. The, the listener had an active, uh, an active role in deciding what they heard. Um, and, and I, that was interesting to me. And, and it, you know, it, I sort of, like I said, I worked in these narrative loops, which is different from, you know, a standard radio piece where you uh, build, I guess, a narrative arc. And so you have, at the end of your piece, you have some sort of truth, some sort of reveal that you want everybody to take away. And, and you start at the intro and you reveal, reveal, and build to the point where everybody gets that, that takeaway, that message, that whatever it is you're going for. Um, and you try and take everybody on that same journey from the intro to the end of it. Uh, in reality, though, everybody hears things in their own way and filters it through their own biases and interpretations and experiences. So as much as you try and take people on that same journey, you have to accept that everybody is going to go a slightly different route or take it a slightly different way. And so for this piece, I, I sort of flipped that dynamic. So all the sounds were the same. And you might hear, two people might hear the same stories, but they're going to hear it in a different context, in a different order, in a different sort of random juxtaposition of ideas and, 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 uh, and narratives and, and stories. And so really what this was for me was, I guess, trying to combine those two worlds. So taking this, this narrative background and, and this love of storytelling and, and, and people's connection to the places around them and using... Um, what's often referred to in music as a, as a generative structure or a generative composition. So like a, it, basically a series of moving parts that continually combine to create a new, a new piece, a new soundscape, a new uh, sort of rhythm. And I guess maybe the best example of that that I can think of would be Steve Reich's uh, Tape Works. Uh, it's Gonna Rain, uh, where he had a bunch of tape loops that were seemingly the exact same length and seemingly started at the exact same time. But back in the analog days, that was all but impossible. There was micro difference between the, the four loops, so or two loops, I forget how many. Um, and so it created this, this sonic collage. And so I sort of adapted that idea into these narrative loops to create this sort of um, ever-evolving part documentary, part sound installation, 
that really embrace chance and random juxtaposition. Uh, and so I'm going to play you a little clip from uh, one of the, uh, a part of one of the loops that you would have heard if you walked through the, uh, the installation. It, it's hard to, I never found a way to present the piece outside of the radio because so much of it is walking around and tuning into the signals and fighting through the static to find the next story. Um, but, uh, but so it's a little bit out of context, but I'm going to, I'm going to play this for you. Just a short clip of what you would have heard. Uh, uh, this one was located right outside the, uh, the downtown hotel, which is one of the, one of the sort of bars downtown. And, uh, it features the music of, uh, Barnacle Bob, who is a famous, uh, singer, piano player in, in Dawson city. And, and you could hear, he played at the downtown like Thursday through Sunday, every, every night. So, when you were walking by, you'd hear his music pouring out of the hotel, and it was just, it was part of the soundscape, and so I wanted to use it in the piece here. Nope, not that one. Right. This one. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave this town forever. Like, I love this town. Like, yeah, this is home. This is where I'm gonna die. Like, I, I buried my parents in the Yukon River. I uh, put them their ashes down there and sent them off to Alaska and put them on a Yukon tour and dumped a ball of whiskey in. It was a good night. It was a good night. It was a good night. And I loved it. I loved this town. I ain't leaving till the day I die. And that's my the beauty home. of this place. It's you've got so much different people comes around, and uh, everybody love each other, which is uh, you don't get that very much in big city. Yeah, well, you, you can get that, but you have to go to a certain place. But here, it's right here, right now. First time I came to the Yukon, I was in Carcross. I met this fellow who today is a good friend of mine, and he said to me, first time in the Yukon." I said, "Yeah." Mind if I give you some advice? I said, go for it. He said, well, if you're an asshole, there ain't nowhere you can go, man. But if you're a half-decent guy, you're going to have a lot of fun. And they're true words. He said, the Yukon is a small town. There ain't nowhere you can go, man. You know, and, uh, but if you're a half-decent guy, you're going to have a lot of fun. And have you had a lot of fun? You betcha, man. You betcha. I wouldn't trade it for the world, you know. Bob's fabulous. I love Bob. And then he gets playing uh, the Stan Rogers stuff like that. You'd think we're all a bunch of East Coasters. And everything I know about the East Coast, I know from Bob and singing those songs. Yeah, and we're good. When he gets playing in the pit, I miss him playing at the pit. It's sad he can't play there anymore. I wish that they would work that out. Because it's just not the same in the downtown. You need that pit crew. And I think it was pretty impressive for the visitors to come in there and they'd see all these people. And we'd all know all the words to all the songs. And we'd sing them just mightily. Eh? With great heart and gusto. It's that, and it's just the generosity and the the 
free kind of, I don't know, free living that you kind of get here. There's, nobody really second guesses you as long as you're, you know, doing your thing and you're not bothering people. Like, as long as you're not a thief or... It's not a great number of people, but they seem to have a certain... Something in common. Something elements of their character in common. Those that come here to it because they enjoy it. Not to answer the next leg of their promotion. Generally, everybody comes up, seems to start off with perhaps a clean slate, if you like. Another chance. And some of them seem like yeah, they, when you find out their backstories, well, they need it. <laughs> tried living in. So that's just an excerpt from it. Uh, there's about, all told, there's about an hour and 45 minutes of material I produced for that piece. It all depended where you were standing and, and where you were walking through and. Uh, yeah, just as a as a side note, Barnacle Bob uh, got his name apparently because uh, he lived on the West Coast for a while, and he, uh, rumor has it, stole an RCMP boat, cut it in half, added like ten feet to it, and then painted over it, and then got hired by the RCMP in that boat to go look for the stolen RCMP boat. <laughs> so that that's the kind of place Dawson City is. And uh, yeah, it was just the, the, the perfect place to do a project like this. And uh, originally I had intended to do a whole series of these uh, site-specific installations using this setup uh, and, and thought I would have to be fighting off galleries to, to do it, but uh, have not been able to get a, another version of this off the ground, unfortunately, but I'm still trying. So, um, so I guess I'm going to move on now a little bit here because we're starting to run out of time, but... Um, talk about some of the radio theater and, and sound design work that I've done. And um, probably one of the first sort of theater projects I was, I was very much involved in was a project called Boblo, which um, I made with uh, Kitchen Band Productions through a residency at the uh, Theater Center in Toronto. And Boblo is a very legendary uh, piece of land in the Detroit River. It was used, uh, it was a stop on the Underground Railroad at one point was used uh, for rum running during Prohibition. Uh, for years and years, there was a big amusement park set on the island that now is abandoned and lies in ruin. And so uh, now they're building condos on the island. So it's had this incredible history. And so the show was all about the different, uh, the history of that island and the sort of traces of memory left behind. And um, it was an interesting residency because uh, the way it was structured, it was two years long. Um, and every three or four months, we had two weeks to work in the theater, paid, and then in between then you would have that time to sort of digest what you created in that time and you know refine it for the next round and until it was finally ready. Um, and so in that process, uh, we produced a lot of soundscapes, a lot of songs and stories, and, and I had all of this material on my computer. And um, I got the idea to do, I guess, sort of like a collage piece using songs and stories and music from the, from the project. Uh, and, uh, and that's sort of the next uh, little piece I'm going to play for you now. This was made for um, a festival that I don't think exists anymore called the Radia LX Festival in Lisbon, Portugal. And so it was just a half hour collage of, of a lot of the scenes and stories from the show, but uh, um, really sort of became the sort of blueprint for what was the final script of, of the piece. And so the little piece I'm going to play you now actually uh, features um, an actual story uh, from the history of Boblo Island, where um, 
um, a young child uh, of somebody who lived on the island got lost in the water on a little duck boat and ended up dying. Um, that's just one of the songs. I'm going to skip ahead. What was here on your right, you will see the remnants of Lookout Cottage, built by James Randall in 1887. Shadows of what once was echoes and memories they ripple through time a tragic event occurred in the randall family when his young son tom davy randall went out in a duck boat on the river one afternoon and a sudden squall picked up and he was never seen again the randalls hired spiritualists who conducted seances in hopes of finding i do not son. know how else to show you though they are not all my transmissions there are some frequencies that have been crossed. His body was found the next morning. In memory, James Randall had the image of his young son engraved on the glass at the front of the house. Randall claimed it had occurred by supernatural means. Dear Thomas, this is your father. We miss you terribly. Dear Thomas, this is your father. We miss you terribly, your mother and I, and we count the days until you come back. I hope you took your warm sweater and hat. I hope you took your warm sweater and hat because it's starting to get cold at night. Please, please come home to us. Thomas, I know you can hear me. Please come home to us. Please let us know where you are. There are some frequencies that have been crossed. Some waves affect a long time. Yeah. Thomas, so I know you can hear me. Please let us know where you are. You're always so good at hide and seek. My collections are glimpses of life that once existed here. For a time. I'll stop it there. So, uh... Yeah, as you can hear, I was very into transmitter feedback at that at that time, and I, I uh, kind of wince a little bit sometimes hearing that because I want to turn it down. But uh, but yeah, it was and and transmission was a part of the theme of of this show and all these different memories coming back through the airwaves and this idea that uh, and something that's really always fascinated me about radio waves is that they never actually stop, right? So the very first radio waves that were ever broadcast are still drifting out there somewhere in space. Uh, they change, they evolve, they, get, they weaken over time, other things interfere, but they still exist. And I think that's, I've always found that to be a really good uh, uh, sort of analogy with uh, memory. Because it, much like memory and experience, it has a, a, a place, a time and place where it starts, but it, it resonates out over the years and, and keeps going. And changes and gets weaker and other things come and interfere, but, but that original memory and that experience still resonates. Um, and uh, yeah, so that went on to to uh, we find when we finished it, it went on to have a run at the theater center and ended up winning uh, Dora Awards and all that, and was a very successful, uh, very successful project. And really, one of my first, one of the first theater projects I really was sort of responsible for sound design in. Uh, I'd been involved in other things and loosely, but uh, that was uh, something that really got me thinking about sound design, uh, you know, and as as sort of a an artistic uh, endeavor, and. Um, led me to you know uh, i had always been interested in radio theater and you could hear from that sort of collage piece that was very much 
piece of radio theater I, I approached it as. Uh, but probably my most ambitious and, and the one that took longest to take a, a project that I've ever done is a project called Music in the Shadow People, which is a radio play based off of writing by William Parker, who is a brilliant uh, jazz composer, improviser, bass player, really, really visionary musician and genius. And uh, uh, he, has a, he published a book, a short story called Music in the Shadow People a while back. Uh, and it was one of these things I'd, I had the, the publication and it was in the back of my mind like, oh, I want to I want to make a radio play out of this because it, it wasn't written as a radio play. But uh, just because he is a composer and he thinks so much about sound, it was very much written sonically. And there's a lot of sonic cues in the text. And it to me, just when I read it, I could hear it rather than seeing it. And so it became this thing where I, you know, for years pitched it to anybody who would listen and, and finally got uh, Finally got a show in Austria called Kunst Radio to uh, support it and, and get on board. And uh, once I had their support, I was I was ready to approach William about it and, and you know sent him this email one night. And we had we had met once or twice just professionally, uh, you know, as a radio producer. But I didn't know the man well at all. And he's a you know like I say a pretty major figure in contemporary music. And so I sent him this email saying like, oh, I had this idea and this show was you know willing to support it and I'd love to do it with your permission but you know I I'm not getting any money for it really I can't pay you rights for this and you know if you want to hear more of my work and hear what my approach is you know I'd happy to share it with you and he got back to me within 12 hours just saying like great do it I love it like don't worry don't worry about money so and he, he was very supportive throughout this whole process and and sort of helped it get off the ground and actually read one of the parts for the for the finished product and um so just as a sort of a brief overview of the story, it, it takes place in sort of a dystopic world uh, that it says is uh, ruled, dominated, and being destroyed by he. And uh, he is sort of this representation of this all-powerful, you know, government or ruler. And, you know, books are burned, records are banned, and all of this. And uh, the two main characters, Stocky Man is a revolutionary who's trying to, you know, break people out of this world and, and show them the, the tone world. And uh, uh, Johnson Wordless, the other character, is a conscripted soldier in the army trying to prosecute people like Stocky Man. And so part of it takes place in this, in this dystopic world, and part of it also takes place in what William refers to as the tone world, which uh, is an idea that's central to his music and a lot of the work that he's done. And it's basically, according to William, where sound exists before we hear it. Uh, and uh, in this world, it, it's, uh, it's made up of the seven bass tones that make up all sound. And these tones in and of themselves have various healing properties. And, and so the, the piece sort of goes back and forth between these two worlds and explores them. So I'm going to play two sort of clips, uh, two clips, one that's sort of set in this dystopic world with uh, Johnson Wordless as a soldier. This one. How I wish I could be strong enough to escape strong enough to fight back, strong enough to die for what is right. Every day I look for a sign, a ray of light. When I was a child, I remember reading science fiction books about a future time when books would be burned and curiosity could literally kill you. I never dreamed these things would come true in my lifetime, or that I would be an active participant. I am happy just to remember the image of feeling. I open letters sent by school children. 
Often I wonder how they can still smile when there are hardly any green plants left. One day I was on patrol. The skyline is yellow. The child sits in the snow collecting roses. I thought I was trapped in the deep south around 1921. Of course I would later realize this was not so. Raspy Voice was hired by the army to be a sound scout. He was an ex-singer. His job was to measure sound vibrations. Any sounds vibrating at an ultra-high rate had to be investigated. It was against the law to play non-commercial music. Raspy Voice had been imprisoned at one point in his life for playing cosmic music. His vocal cords were damaged during a torture session, leaving him with a distinct growl in his speech. He eventually agreed to give information about the shadow people in exchange for his life. When I look at his eyes, I see signs of a broken heart. He was constantly in a bad mood. And on top of all this, he would chain-smoke cigarette after cigarette from the time he awoke until he went to bed. Still, it was Raspy Voice who had come closest to the tone world. He did not take any of it for granted. The fact that roses grew out of piles of snow meant that we were near a sonic passage. I wandered downward toward the lower rim of the Orange Valley. We descended upon a village. I started to become ill. My stomach had a bad reaction to army food. So I'll stop it there, but uh, that was, I guess, sort of the more narrative aspect of the uh, of the project and then uh, play an example of what was more I guess sort of the poetic uh, aspect of it. Someone is knocking on the yellow birth door. The doorman who is both male and female opens the door. A bluish purple flame spirals and laces the embryo still in the womb. Now droplets of stone pour from the opening at the top of the world. The story is in the strong music the Thunder Drummers produce. I am a whole wheat dumpling sautéed in blood. The angel says it is time to go. Blue, white flames line the birth passage. I see no color. I feel nothing. Grains of sand turn into ants. Why do I leave my eternity to be with you? A bolt of lightning stretches across the vast darkness. The sun resounds like a huge gong. The wind whistles through the holes in the sky. Trees are strung with sinew. The earth is a sound box of six million birds singing six million tones simultaneously. Spirit tones float in lava. Ice castles melt, forming huge lakes. The seas of oceans, water tones begin to sing. The thunder drummers take two steps forward and spin. The earth opens up and swallows the sound. Tear tones slide down the bamboo stick. Silver peacocks place their hands on the unwashed altars in the rice fields. Bell tones are sounded. The house of the creator is the body. The altar is the heart. It is also the creator's drum. The rhythm is a life force, the vibration of temples, the green mountain, the worm digging in soil. Children collapse in the bushes. They use leaves as pillows. The pillows turn into light, then 
to eternal happiness than to stars. Oak and maple harps are plucked. The long breath is held. The tail of the dragon is caught in the lid of the upper lip. Stone fingers flap like skin peeled and placed over gourds. Branches tremble from the corner of the eye. Shadows sparkle in the golden wetness of visual, touchable dream zones. Every lie that has been told since creation is written in huge letters over the black-purple horizon. I'll stop it there. Um, so yeah, that gives you a sense of that project, and that was actually William Parker reading there. Um, and I do plan to develop this piece further. Uh, um, I have sort of made a treatment for, I guess, sort of a live performance of this radio play uh, with music and multi-channel sound design and live actors, which... Uh, Someday I hope to have the money to <laughs> get it off the ground. But uh, yeah, so it's, that's uh, something I spent a lot of time working on and, and uh, hopefully we'll spend some more time developing further. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of running out of time here, but I want to skip ahead to uh, a current project of mine, uh, which is called Parkdale Pirate Radio. Uh, Darren had mentioned that at the beginning of the show. So uh, what it is, it's a 12-watt pirate radio station that I broadcast out of my home studio from. Doesn't go very far, covers about three or four city blocks, which in the neighborhood I live in actually reaches a lot of people because it's a very densely populated neighborhood. Uh, but it's something I've been doing for about uh, three years now. The name of the show is uh, Disco 3000. Uh, everybody's first question they ask is, oh, so it's a disco show? Uh, but it, uh, the name of the show is actually a reference to a Sun Ra album that I really like, uh, a reference I thought more people would get. Um, but most people just think I have a disco show. And my response to that is that I don't not play disco. Uh, I guess it depends what you mean when you say the word disco. Like, I don't play Donna Summer's records. But, uh, you know, I, I, I will play uh, all kinds of music. And, and it really is, uh, there really is no format. Every week is different, and I really strive to not fall into patterns when programming it and really present something new and unique every week. And I've always said that you're just as likely to hear uh, a 40-minute John Luther Adams symphony as you are to hear, you know, the eight and a half minute extended dance mix of Little Red Corvette by Prince. And you might even hear those in the same show. Um, and I, I guess in many ways, it's a, it's a response to the declining quality of the music on the radio dial. And, uh, you know, I've seen firsthand the systematic elimination of any kind of experimentation, any kind of risk taking. Um, I, I've been told outright by people who operate you know, public radio operations, large and small, you can't ever play anything too long or too loud or too weird. Uh, you can never give anybody, never make anybody even think about changing the channel, which is, to me, just kind of sad and not exciting. And, and I remember, if you recall that Murray Schaefer clip uh, I was playing where he's introducing the, the documentary on CBC, uh, and it eventually got cut out, but uh, later on in that clip, he says, uh, you know how you need to let your whole body become an ear and close your eyes and listen. And, uh, you know, if you're driving or you can't focus on this, maybe change the channel or turn the radio off. And I remember the producer I was working with at the time, we were listening to that. And she looked at me and said, can you imagine somebody saying that now? Like you, you can't, you can't even suggest it or think about it. 
And, and you know, from my perspective, I'm, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to not play something because I feel people might turn the radio off. Uh, if you want to turn the radio off, fine. I, I, hopefully, I'd like people to come along for the ride and see where I'm going next, even if they don't like what I'm playing now. But ultimately, I'm not going to let that stop me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to program the show that I want to program. And I guess at the risk of sounding a little pretentious, I feel like it's kind of a lost art. Nobody sits down and puts together a thoughtful program of music anymore beyond any kind of genre or style or format. Uh, you know, something that, something that connects ideas and, and reflects an emotion or a time and place. It's not really ever done anymore. And, uh, you know, I like to start, I like it when, you know, you can start a show in a certain place and two hours later end up somewhere completely different. But along the way, all the transitions between those things are smooth. And, uh, you know, I, you can connect ideas and genres and eras in a way that maybe people haven't thought of before or maybe that I haven't thought of before. And so that's, that's really what I try and do with this radio project. Um, yeah, and I've got a little, uh, I'm going to play a little video that, uh, that uh, Vice uh, did about my radio show, uh, just as a bit of a background to it. I'm plugging in the transmitter. So you hear it sort of stutters and locks onto the signal. There it is, on the radio. You are listening to Parkdale Pirate Radio, 87.5 FM. show is Disco 3000. Disco 3000 is a weekly pirate radio show that I've been uh, broadcasting for three years now out of my home studio. It's a music show and I try to sort of present a really eclectic two-hour music program. I don't limit myself to any kind of genre or style. Yes, it's illegal, but I'm really not bothering anybody and I don't think anybody notices, so. Okay, come on up to the third floor. Growing up, these sort of obscure late night radio signals were very formative to me. So this is the mast for my antenna. You mount them 1.9 meters apart. So from this point, it travels about a radius of about three or four blocks. And I guess in many ways, it's sort of a response to what I feel is the very sort of timid nature of what's on the radio nowadays. You can't play anything difficult or, or challenging or too long or anything like that. And I just, uh, I find those limitations really frustrating and I find that kind of programming really boring as a listener. People don't know the exact location. Uh, they know the general area it comes from. I really tried to keep the project as anonymous as possible, and I, I realized the irony of saying that with the camera pointed at me. I've been in line at coffee shops and whatever, and hear people talking about this. Oh, you hear about this pirate radio show? Or seen people reading my poster, and I, I don't say anything. I just listen and see what they say, because I love the anonymous nature of this, this project. So this part, I'm plugging in the transmitter. So you hear it sort of 
stutters and locks onto the signal. Takes a second. There it is. We're on the radio. The Sandro 70. Love this one. Jim O'Rourke. It's an album of uh, computer music called I'm Happy, I'm Singing, and a one, two, three, four. I'm starting with, uh, with this one here, which is the uh, namesake of uh, this very radio show, Disco 3000. You are listening to Parkdale Pirate Radio, and I am here playing good music on the radio. You know, we live in this time when everything is available to everyone all the time, anywhere. There's something exciting about the ephemeral and immediate nature of a radio broadcast. And uh, I don't even record the show. It just goes out into the air, drifts out into space, and that's it. If you're not there to hear it with the radio, then you don't get to hear it. And that is going to do it for Disco 3000 tonight. I'll be back next Thursday night from 9 to 11 right here on Parkdale Pirate Radio. Thank you for listening. So yeah, that was a cool little story that they put together. Uh, I was a little disappointed in the music. Uh, they didn't actually play any music from my show, which I'm assuming is a rights issue. Uh, because if they included the music that I was playing, they would have had to pay rights to, to broadcast it. But I think they just used, you know, studio music or production music that they had already owned. Um, and so, yeah, just a, just a little bit more about that. And then I'll, I'll get to the Raven speak piece and that'll, that'll wrap it up. Um, I've always said uh, I'm more interested in a quantity, a quality of listener rather than a quantity of listener for that show. So I want people who are going to come along for the ride with me and see where I go, see where I take it. Uh, you know, the people who will turn off the radio as soon as they hear something they don't like, then I, I don't mind them not listening if they don't like it. You know, I, I want somebody who's going to come along for the ride. And, uh, you know, the, the, the question I always get, and I, I refer to it a bit in that, uh, in that video, is that people always say, well, why don't you just do a podcast? Uh, and I have nothing against podcasts. I think they're great. And, you know, but I think there's something, uh, there's something magic about doing a live radio show. Um, you know, the fact that I can sit in this room and this magic box can, I can listen to sit there in this room listening to records and this magic box can send it out to an antenna that shoots it out into the air and the people around me with a different magic box can pull it out of the air and listen along with me. That to me just blows my mind. It blew my mind when I started at CKMS 20 years ago and it, it still blows my mind today every time I fire up my transmitter. And uh, that is really ultimately what the show is about for me, I guess. If I had to distill it, it's, you know, experiencing that sort of magical feeling every week is, is sort of what I strive to do. That was Andrew O'Connor speaking at the NASA North Media Arts Center in South River, Ontario. And uh, that's part of the Deep Wireless Festival. And on Making Waves next month, we'll have more content from the Deep Wireless Festival of Radio and Transmission Art. Thank you for listening.